Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. All right, well, thanks for joining us on the American Potential podcast. Uh, we've got a great episode for you today. As always, appreciate everything you do to get, we're just growing leaps and bounds. Like the downloads on this podcast are growing. We're excited about that. There's so much going on, tons of reviews, over a thousand reviews, I think on Spotify, pretty close to a thousand reviews, uh, five-star reviews, by the way, on uh, iTunes. So, So thanks for doing that. Follow us on Twitter, on Facebook. And if you haven't noticed, We've gone to video format. So these podcasts are now video podcasts. You can watch them on Facebook, on YouTube. Uh, of course, you can always listen to them on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, so, but we'll get right to our show today. You know, I think one of the things that people are frustrated with in politics in Washington are politicians who say one thing and then they do another. And once elected, many of our leaders seem to abandon principle. Um, and the promises that they made to citizens when they got elected. But you know what? That isn't the case with today's guest. So on this show, we always like to highlight elected officials who truly keep their word. You know, policy champions who run on a set of core principles. And then uh, when in office, they don't violate those principles. And I am pleased to have one of these elected officials on the show today, United States Senator Pete Ricketts of Nebraska. Senator Ricketts has been in the Senate for a very short time, but he served two terms as Nebraska's governor and he kept his promises every step of the way. The Ricketts family is a household name in middle America, but it wasn't always that way. You know, Senator Ricketts grew from very humble beginnings and his family built an incredible business through very hard work, sacrifice and building the American dream. And as Nebraska's governor, Pete Ricketts focused on delivering value to the taxpayers and making government more responsive to citizens. He reduced wait times at most state agencies and being true to his word, Governor Ricketts cut taxes every year he was in office with his largest tax cut being in his last year as governor. This was all provided for by keeping government spending under control in Nebraska and allowing the state to put more money back in the pockets of the citizens of the state. I'm honored to have the former governor of Nebraska, current United States Senator and part owner of the Chicago Cubs, Pete Ricketts, as my guest today. Hi, Pete. How are you, Senator? I'm doing well, Jeff. Hey, you can just keep talking. You're doing a great job. I don't need to interrupt <laughs> you. You're doing fine. Listen, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, uh, you... First of all, I want to tell folks, you've been like an advocate for Americans for Prosperity for a long time. In fact, I remember you were at a rally, the very first rally, you were holding down a stake and a hot air balloon. At a, I want you to tell that story if you can. Yeah, so that's a famous Americans for Prosperity story. We were doing the hands off my health care tour, as I recall. Yeah. And Tim Phillips, the president, was out in Omaha. And they had a big hot air balloon to help promote it. So we're, you know, doing our whole thing where we're trying to get at grassroots activists to come in, sign up, tell them what we're doing. People were very hot about the health care bill. And unfortunately, well, it was nice that it rained, but it was it just rained a lot. And so the ground was really soft. And so we put these stakes into the ground and the balloon was 
doing what balloons do. They try to go up and the ground was so soft it pulled one of the stakes out and went flying. And, you know, fortunately, nobody got hit, nobody got hurt, but we're like, uh-oh. <laughs> so we had to go grab these stakes, secure them better so that they didn't pop up out of the ground. Uh, but it certainly made for a memorable uh, rally that we had there to tell people to keep hands off our health care. Well, yeah, it, it sure did. And, you know, grassroots, I want to talk to you about that because I know that you you understand the power of grassroots, right? Citizens being able to come together and and push an agenda. And, and, and the, the greatest change in America doesn't happen without that. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to my long association with Americans Prosperity, back when, you know, Obama was pushing Obamacare, this is one of the things that we really tried to let the folks in Washington know how much we really did not want this. And it was just getting people together, getting them organized, getting them to show up. And while it didn't directly stop the vote on healthcare from passing, I can tell you it certainly had consequences for the politicians who did that and who supported it afterwards. Uh, Americans for Prosperity, for example, organized um, uh, you know protests at Senator Ben Sass's or sorry, uh, Senator Ben Nelson's uh, conference, uh, you know, office in Omaha. Like every Tuesday, they were there, and so right. he was getting the message that the vote he made was a, a really challenging vote, and ultimately he decided not to run for another term. And I got to believe that the political grassroots activism of Americans for Prosperity played into that decision. So I, yeah. I, I think it, it is an important thing that the grassroots get out, get activated call their state senator, their U.S. senator, their congressman, and let them know how they feel about a, this issue and that issue, because it does matter to officials when you hear from a large number of constituents on a topic. Yeah, that's right. Okay, now I have, I've been dying to ask this question. How cool is it to own the Chicago Cubs? Is that pretty cool? It's <laughs> it got to be cool. It is a fun industry. Uh, <laughs> our job is to make people happy. And of course, uh, under the Ricketts ownership, uh, primarily, my brother Tom, who's our executive chairman, he was kind of the architect of this. We were able to achieve the first uh, World Series victory in 108 years. So that was the longest drought in professional sports in America. Right. And, uh, you know, through, uh, bring, frankly, bringing the same sort of things I brought to state government, which is a business way, a business approach of how to run things. That's what we did to the Cubs, uh, you know, brought a, a, you know, a, a business approach to running the team, which is what I did for state government. That's how. I was able to get the really terrific turnaround in services that we started providing to people through state government. And that's how we got better outcomes for the Cubs to win the World Series. All right. Well, I'm going to spare you my Harry Jeff, Carey did you impression. Like, Jeff, did you like how I, I tied those two things together? Did you I like love that? how you did that. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a marketing genius. You're a marketing genius. I'm going to spare you my Harry Carey impression, just okay, so you know. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I will do that. Uh, but anyway, hey, th- th- and, you know, thanks for all of that. I mean, I've, I've been a Cubs fan for a long time and um, a long suffering Cubs fan until until you guys uh, uh, br- brought us a world championship. So, and we're going to get so better again. We're going to get better again. That's great. That's great. So, I want to talk to you about a couple of things, but particularly, you know, the EPA. Um, I, so people understand, maybe you can talk about what, what is the EPA, what's it responsible for, and, and how important is it for the United States Congress to have oversight over the Environmental Protection Agency? Yeah, absolutely. So the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, is responsible for carrying out the laws that the Congress passes and the president signs with regard to environmental protection. 
And these are important laws. You know, nobody cares more about our clean air and clean water in Nebraska than we do as Nebraskans. And we want to make sure that we have an environment and a world we can pass on to the next generation and be proud of it. In fact, Nebraska, according to U.S. News and World Report, has the sixth best environment in the country. Whereas the president's state of Delaware, I might point out, has the sixth worst environment in the country. But what we see out of the Environmental Protection Agency, particularly under this Biden administration and under the Obama administration before this one, was that they are overreaching on what the laws Congress passed are. So, for example, just a classic example of this is the Waters of the U.S. rule. So in the 1972 Clean Water Act, Congress gave the EPA authority to regulate navigable water. So that's a water that you can put a boat on and go someplace on, right? And to me, that says that's rivers, oceans, lakes. Those are navigable bodies. You can expect to see a ship on those things. What the EPA is now trying to do is say, well, no, that actually means roadside ditches, puddles on construction sites, farm ponds. None of those things are navigable under any sort of stretch of the word meaning, you know, stretching the word to mean that. And that's an example of how Congress has to have the oversight to say, no, Congress writes the laws. If the president signs to become, you know, writes a bill, Congress signs, you know, president signs it becomes a law, but the EPA does not get to write laws. And that's what they're trying to do right now. They're really trying to subvert our system of divided government where we've got, or, you know, checks and balances where we have three branches of government that are responsible for very specific functions. And these bureaucrats at the EPA are really trying to stretch the meaning of what the law Congress wrote is to do things Congress did not intend them to do. Again, navigable waters was in that Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act 50 times, 50 times. Congress was very clear. The EPA is trying to go around it. And that's why we have to you know, remain having oversight over the EPA because they will try to stretch what the meaning of the law is or try to subvert it entirely in this case. And it's just not right. It's not the way our system of government works. Yeah, you talked about waters of the United States. Um, you know, there's so many other areas where I think the EPA is is overreaching. And, you know, that's not the way our founders intended for this to work. We wanted a, a federal government that was responsive to the citizens uh, that elected them. And and this is really one of the real problems with, with all federal agencies, but I think particularly with the EPA. Um, Maybe are there other areas besides that, that that the EPA is kind of overreaching that you see where maybe Congress needs to step in and take some more, more control? Yeah, absolutely. So another rule that the EPA is putting out has to do with tailpipe emissions. And again, this is not something that they're necessarily like, they're responsible for doing this, but they're doing it in a way that is a, a complete overreach because what they've proposed is tailpipe emissions that would require that two-thirds of all, elect- or all cars sold in the United States by 2032 would be electric vehicles. Now, we all want to reduce the amount of carbon in our environment, and particularly our air, reduce greenhouse gases. But we ought to allow industry to innovate, to find those ways, rather than being told what to do. And the consequence of this is nobody in the Biden administration, nobody in the White House, nobody in the EPA, has actually done the math to show that we can actually achieve what they want. You know, for example, if you were to electrify all the heavy trucks on the road, you're going to need 10% more power generation. To do it for cars, you're going to need 40% more power generation. And ironically, it takes a while to build power generation or transmission lines because the environmentalists that the EPA are kowtowing to are blocking those things. And what about rare earth elements? You know, the fact that China is responsible for processing a large majority of those means we'd be dependent on a chief adversary we've got in this world, kind of like what we were in OPEC before we had the shale revolution here in this country. 
And that's a bad thing. Even the U.S. Defense Department, uh, Defense Department under, under Biden has said that's a bad thing. So nobody's actually put pencil to paper to show how we can do this. And this is another area where Congress has to exercise oversight and say, hey, what you're doing here is not right. And really, you can go through a number of different issues where, whether it's the EPA or the Department of Labor or whatever, they're trying to push regulations that really are going to have disruptive effect, uh, event, uh, you know, consequences. And we as the Congress have to push back on this. Now, we may still end up in court on these things, which has happened on things like Waters of the U.S. and so forth, when the EPA won't listen to us. Uh, but that's, again, why we have checks and balances in our government. We've got a legislative branch that's supposed to pass the laws, not the executive branch. And then a judicial branch, which oversees when, for example, the executive branch steps out of line and we go to court. You know, I, I want to do a podcast episode on this one time. I've always thought, you know, if you just look at the price of a, a new pickup truck or a car, how much of that is being driven by government just sort of snapping their fingers, making this magical number, whether it's a fuel efficiency standard or, you know, tailpipe emissions or something that that the American people, I don't think, truly understand that is what is driving up the cost of vehicles in the United States of America and making it really unaffordable. And these are bureaucrats in Washington who are doing this and with, with no thought of the impact that has on a single mom in Omaha. Uh, you're exactly right, Jeff. And that is a problem. They're just not thinking about how this impacts everyday Americans. I was just talking to a car dealer about this very issue. And he said, the biggest problem is consumers don't want that many electric vehicles. Like, yes, electric vehicles right. uh, are out there right now. Uh, but they're really expensive. They're, you know, like a, a third to 40% more expensive than a conventional vehicle. And the price will come down as we make more of them. But they're still really expensive right now. And this car dealer said, you know, Americans just don't want that many of them. His customers are not asking for that many electric vehicles. So again, this is an area where they're not thinking about, gee, if I'm an ordinary family and a regular car costs $46,000, now one of these electric vehicles costs $65,000. That's a lot of money. Or I'll give you another example. It's not related to the EPA, but the rule they just decided to put on hold now where they're going to start charging mortgage holders who had good credit scores more money and give it to people who had lower credit scores. And that is, frankly, socialism, pure and simple. Sure. Yeah. But in that case, you, you, over the lifetime of, say, a $400,000 mortgage for an average family, I saw one analyst report say that would cost $14,000. Well, that's wow. a lot of money to a regular family. So, I mean, this is the kind of thing that is costing Americans money every time the Biden administration decides to put out a rule that they really haven't thought through. And that's just about every single one. Yeah, it is. I mean, $64,000, that's the same amount that the is the average American yearly salary. Yeah. So, you know, you would spend an entire salary on purchasing one of these vehicles. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it, it it's crazy. And, you know, there's there's a disconnect between the the lifestyles too, right? I mean, you're a senator from Nebraska. I mean, that, I just don't see a lot of ranchers and farmers in Nebraska just rushing to buy an electric vehicle. Do you? No. And in fact, that's one of the things too. I, especially, it's been a long time since I've lived in a big city and, you know, I'm here in DC now. And that's one of the things I've really noticed is that you have a lot of people who have no idea what it's like in Nebraska. They just don't understand our way of life. You know, for example, if you're looking on Highway 20 in Nebraska, I think between Allen and Hay Springs, it's something like 340 miles. There's no chargers. 
you're not going to get anything charged. Right. And a, a heavy truck can go about 150, 200 miles on a charge. And well, guess what? That works okay in Lincoln and Omaha, but it doesn't get you very far across the rest of the state. So people just don't have a concept of what it's like to live in Nebraska on the East Coast here. And that really kind of distorts what they think is possible when we're coming, when they start talking about things like electric vehicles and about the, the, you know, the practicality of, of how that works. So th- that is one of the things that, you know, as a senator from Nebraska, I'm going to have to work to educate people on. But it's also just something, not only do I have to educate people, but we have to fight because just, there isn't the concept of why some of these rules they want to propose are just not practical uh, for folks in the middle part of the country. Yeah, there's no doubt that they aren't. It also isn't liberty and freedom. And that's, that's the other thing. You know, the government is pretty good at taking away people's choices uh, through regulations like this. And, and again, I'm all for it. If you want to go get an electric vehicle, you should be able to do that. But shouldn't every American have that same choice? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and yeah, I got nothing against electric vehicles. If you ever driven one, they got super fun acceleration. Like they, right. they really go fast in a hurry. And they're quiet. I mean, they're high tech. They're cool cars. There's no doubt about it. But the point is, and actually a friend of mine told me, you know, in America, we don't solve our problems. We innovate our way out of them. And we can only have that innovation if we're free to innovate. If the marketplace is allowed to work, if we allow people to interact if we don't have too much regulation, we can find innovative ways to be able to take carbon out of the environment in ways that aren't disruptive. So for example, one of the things that I've been working on is trying to get higher blends of ethanol like E15, because that also reduces carbon emissions. It helps us clean up the environment. It's actually gonna save consumers at the pump. Uh, Of course, it's great for our farmers and ranchers in Nebraska, but that's another way that we can be looking at it. And frankly, there's a distribution system already in place for things like ethanol or biodiesel or renewable diesel, again, if you're talking about heavy trucks, that's a way that we can start taking down carbon emissions in a distribution system we already have. And I guess my point is we shouldn't lock ourselves into one solution. It should be an all of the above, let the marketplace dictate innovation and see where it goes from there. How much of this is driven by a desire to, to, to I guess, by some in the Biden administration and elsewhere to just get us off of fossil fuels altogether at all costs? whether there's an alternative to that or not. Well, I, certainly it's the agenda of President Biden, right? He right. campaigned on this. He said, he told people like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna end fossil fuels. And then of course, if you saw his State of the uh, Union address, one of the things he said is unscripted, but this is the way he thinks, right? Is like, oh, we'll need oil for at least another 10 years, which of <laughs> course is just crazy talk because we're gonna need it a lot longer as we transition right. off of it and find other alternatives. But that's just the way he thinks. And I will tell you, it's part of this Biden agenda or Biden administration's misplaced agenda. Certainly, attract, you know, dealing with what we want to do to, to reduce the amount of carbon in the environment is one of the things that we want to take care of as a country. But we also have other really pressing issues, like an undefended southern border that is allowing fentanyl and other dangerous drugs to come across. And, and frankly, the leading cause of death of Americans 18 to 45 is fentanyl. Uh, in 2021, 70,000 people died of fentanyl, 106,000 died of drug overdose. If a, if a terrorist attacked our country and killed over 100,000 people, we'd be up in arms, we'd mobilize. Yet the Biden administration does nothing. Or you think about this high inflation that we've got. Uh, and that is contributed in part by the Biden administration's agenda to destroy American energy, uh, you know, the fossil fuels. So it's just misplaced agendas that this, this administration has. And really the only thing that's driving them is what they can do on taking carbon out of the environment 
And while, again, that's an important issue, that is not the only issue that we're facing here in the United States. Yeah, let me switch gears a little bit. You, you, you talked about the border. That's something that, you know, obviously is, is a hot topic right now. But another one, obviously, is the, the debt limit. And, and, you know, we are hurtling towards a fiscal cliff, right? We spend more money as a government than we take in. We've done that for decades. There's no end to that in sight. And, the, you know, we're, we're desperate for people in Washington to understand that and get control of spending. But the Biden administration seems sort of hellbent on on kind of using this debt limit issue, uh, you know, to really drive more spending. Y- your thoughts on where we are and Congress trying to negotiate with the president in this whole effort? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, to your point about taking care of, you know, getting on spending, we have to start doing something. Look, every American family knows at the end of the day, you have to live within your means. And nobody wants the debt to be defaulted on. But the fact of the matter is, if you use 2019 as a baseline year, because that was the last year before the pandemic, our spending is up 54%. We went from like $4.4 trillion to the last few years have been like 6.3, 6.5. I think the president's new budget is $6.9 trillion in spending. So we're talking about a 54% increase in spending from 2019 when our population has only grown 1.8%. That's just wow. not sustainable, right? That everybody we should be able to understand that, hey, you just can't keep spending that much more when you don't have a population that justifies it. If you look at, for example, non-defense discretionary spending, that's up 40%. So we've seen significant growth in all these different budgets, and we've got to get it under control. And what the House Republicans propose is eminently reasonable. They're not even going back to 2019, which is kind of where I would have started, but they, they started in 2022 and passed a responsible budget that controls spending and raises the debt limit. And that is what the president ought to be negotiating on. We've got divided government. The American people gave the House to the Republicans. And it is the legislative branch that has the purse strings here, right? That's the way our system is designed. I know, I used to be a governor, right? I would propose a budget, but it was just a proposal the legislature in Nebraska actually put together the budget that was voted on on the floor. They took my recommendations. In fact, most of the time, they took like 95% of my recommendations. But it was what they did. And the same thing is true at the national level. Our Congress is the one who actually starts by, you know, Pat, the president proposes a budget, but we pass a budget. And now the president needs to negotiate on the budget the House Republicans passed to come to a solution to be able to raise the debt limit and control spending. And by the way, this is not new. Seven out of the last 10 times we've had this issue, the president has had to negotiate with the Congress on what that was. Most recently, of course, President Trump had to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi, and that's how the system works. I know President Biden did not fail Civics 101. He knows this. He knows he needs to negotiate. And that's where we come up, that's where, frankly, what he needs to do as president, because he's the president, he should demonstrate that leadership, sit down with Speaker McCarthy, and start negotiating, okay, You've got a budget proposal on the table here. Where do we go from here to find something that we can pass and do the responsible thing for the American people? You know, I, I wonder how much of this, too, I, as I look at it, it seems like the president and the Biden administration in, in years past when this has come up and certainly this year as well. He's counting on the the media, the mainstream media kind of giving him cover and blaming Republicans for a default. And that's that's kind of the game that's being played here and to use that as a wedge to get more spending 
out of a system that is just, as I said, heading towards a cliff. Do you see that as, as a problem, kind of the mainstream media as well, kind of feeding into this narrative and almost playing into the hands of the president? Well, certainly it has always been a challenge for us as Republicans and conservatives to be able to get our side of the story out through the mainstream media. I mean, you can look at all the different research that shows that, you know, how biased toward the left the media is in general. And so that's always been a challenge for us. You know, fortunately, we have other alternatives to be able to get our you know, news out, kind of like this podcast, using the other sort of things the Internet allows us to do to be able to reach the American people and let them know that, hey, we've got problems here when it comes to how much we're spending. We need to get it under control and the president needs to negotiate on this. So it's, you know, for us as conservatives and Republicans, it's always been a challenge and we just got to, you know, work our way through it because our country is too important to just give up. Yeah. Where do you see all this going? I mean, obviously the president, um, you know, his poll numbers are down. I think part of that uh, is, is the sort of the lack of leadership on this issue, on the border, on on so many issues. But where do you see this this debt limit issue and just spending in general going over the next six months? Well, as Senate Republicans, 43 of us signed a letter, and I know there's a couple more who are in support of it, but for one reason or another didn't sign the letter, to say we are not going to vote for cloture on a clean debt limit bill. It has to be something that is addressing the issue of spending to raise the debt limit. And what that really was sending a signal is that we support Speaker McCarthy and what the House Republicans have done. They've done their job. Now it's up to the president to do his job and sit down and negotiate where that goes. So we're going to continue to support the House Republicans and Speaker McCarthy in getting something done that's responsible for the American people that will allow us to avoid the default on the debt and start getting the spending under control. We're not going to solve everything overnight. Uh, we spent decades getting into this problem, but we have to stop digging the hole. We have to start getting the spending under control. Yeah. Yeah, we sure do. You know, we're, we're basically out of time, but I do want to say, you know, uh, we, we both know Brad Stevens, who's your state director. He's, yep. he's been a friend of mine for a long time. And I know he's been a friend and partner of yours for a long time. And, you know, I worked on the Hill a long time ago. I, I was a chief of staff to a member of Congress and stuff. And I always would tell people that the thing I loved about my boss at the time was that he is in person what you see on TV. There's no difference, right? He is who he says he is. Uh, and that's everything I hear about you, too, is what a good, honorable, decent person you are. And so, you know, it's great to have people like that as role models. And I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that I said that. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate the kind words. It's a privilege to be able to do this job. It's a privilege to be able to continue to serve Nebraskans. And I, I, you know, I, I just love the opportunity to be able to do it. And I'm excited about the challenges that we have to be able to make a difference. And you know, we've got the best country in the world. I uh, love living in Nebraska. I think I get the best place in the world, best people in the world. So uh, it's a privilege to be able to do it. All right. I'm going to give you one chance to say, go Big Red. All right. How about that? Can I go, go Big Red. <laughs> there you're supposed to say go big red see if brad go here, big red how's that <laughs> <laughs> all right senator hey senator pete ricketts we thank you for joining us thanks for all you do great thanks jeff i appreciate it so great to have senator pete ricketts really a what i mean what a good guy everything i've heard about pete ricketts and it's not just from one person but i've heard it from lots of people who worked with him as a governor or knew him before i didn't even bring this up but i met uh senator ricketts before he ran for governor, I went over to his office and met with him. 
and uh, just just personally, he and I, what what a great person. And again, someone who, uh, you know, I mean, could could not really contribute back to society now. He's he's probably got enough ability to uh, just go off and do whatever he wanted to do to satisfy himself. But he's giving back to our country because he loves our country, uh, gave, giving back to the state of Nebraska. So um, it, 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 what a great, uh, great public servant and a great person. And it, it's great to have him uh, be a guest on the show. Look, again, we talked about this. The Environmental Protection Agency talked about these, these goals that two-thirds of all vehicles in the U.S. by 2032, they just snapped their fingers and somehow this is all supposed to happen. Magically, we're all supposed to transform the way that the federal government wants us to. There's a cost to that. And the cost is to families, to families who can't afford that. You heard us talk about it. $64,000 is the average annual income. That's the price of one of these electric vehicles. So there is a cost to this. And it's easy if you're a bureaucrat in Washington. It's easy if you're a policymaker inside the Beltway to just snap your fingers and say, oh, everybody should do this. It's a little harder when you're that single mom or you're that struggling family or you're that person who just got out of college trying to make ends meet and say, you know what? I I now have to afford other things in life despite the fact that government has mandated this on me that I have to buy a car that now costs $64,000. It's wrong. Frankly, it's immoral. It's, it's wrong. Hey, thanks for joining us on American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com. 